Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. I just tried out an introduction for David Bright that went on and on because there's so much to say about him and about our conversation that you're going to be hearing in a few moments. If I can stop talking, I can't stop talking about David and the field of organization development and change that he is leading as the outgoing chairman of the division of organization development and change of the Academy of Management, but so much more. He is definitely deep into moving this entire field in a direction that will be ever more useful and meaningful in the post-pandemic era that we're entering now. I hope because organization life has been chopped up in so many parts and we need leadership to bring it back together and the folks who study and provide change management process leadership are going to be very much needed and David knows that now so do I and hopefully so do you so here is Professor David Bright. Folks, just before I uh, turn on the recording, uh, David Bright, who is joining me now, was filling me in on, remind me, David, where do you work? And of course, I gave him the wrong university in the wrong state. And then uh, uh, a couple, couple of other things that I uh, characteristically didn't get right. But we're <laughs> going to get this right because it's going to be fun to talk with David Bright. He is a professor of organizational behavior and organization development at Wright State. See, I got the right right. That's right. Uh, in Dayton, Ohio. And what he was just saying when I rudely started recording was that uh, he is the outgoing chairman of the Division of Organization Development and Change of the Academy of Management. That's right. And that's a very large um, undertaking for anyone. And it it came about at over a five-year period, and he's got three more weeks to go. Uh, so first and foremost, David, thank you for those five years. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Do you think you'll keep a hand in the division? Or are you going to uh, find that old rocking chair? I mean, <laughs> well, I've got quite a few years in me yet, so I, <laughs> I'm not ready to, to go to the rocking chair. <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, my hope is to continue to make a contribution in the, in the division. Um, I hope we have a chance to talk uh, about some of the activities that we are now working on there. Sure. Um, our goal as a board has been to make the ODC division a, uh, a hub for uh, information, practice, uh, research, uh, education, uh, anything related to organization development and change and change management. And uh, so we are actively working to develop an infrastructure and uh, a community, our community even further. It's already been, you know, we have a vibrant community. We wanna develop that even further, um, but we're also uh, embarking uh, on a, a set of initiatives that we hope to put forward that will last uh, in perpetuity, we hope, and uh, that will change the kind of the dynamic within our, our division, make it more 
more responsive to the, you know, the times that we live in and also to expand our understanding of what organization development and, and organizational change are all about. So, you know, uh, as I recall now going way back, uh, some of the very early conversations I had with Peter Vale, who inspired this work that I continue to do, he was uh, talking about the difference between organization behavior which was uh, characterized by Fritz Roethlisberger when he was a student of that in that doctoral program and organization development, which mm -hmm. meant a lot to Peter because he was among those who worked hard to, de to create a network and to create a journal, well, the early stages of a mm -hmm. journal. And yet change came on later, but Peter always thought about change. He talked mm -hmm. about individual changing, talked about teams adapting and changing, organization changing. Uh, coming to the present, that population of practitioners and uh, scholars and scholar practitioners that is the mix of this division. What When you wake up in the morning and thinking about what's coming up at the end of this month where you're going to be bringing people together, what is what do you think is on the top of their minds in regard to their work, their research? Because they're in change. We're all in a state of change right now. Right. <laughs> so we're not just teaching about it. We're in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's the answer to that question is going to depend very much on who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our, and I guess I'll answer that question from the perspective of, you know, the members of our division and the great diversity of perspectives that we have in the division. Um, I think uh, the research oriented individuals in our division, uh, you know, be obviously thinking about, you know, the, the most pressing questions that uh, are uh, relevant to our time. And uh, I think that that would include questions about, you know, the, uh, how to create human flourishing, how to create organizational flourishing. Um, I think one of the themes that, uh, that characterizes our division, it's, it, which has been kind of central to this uh, uh, year-long focus on, uh, of, you know, a series of, of conversations we've been having, it's on healthy, vibrant, flourishing organizations and communities. Mm. And I, I think that that as a moral imperative is kind of what we're all about in our division. Uh, so, you know, the researchers are going to be focused on topics and questions that will help us understand what that actually means. You know, the theories of flourishing, theories of effective change, theories of, of, uh, of uh, change management and how to transition and help both organizations and individuals with organizations to, to evolve or grow. Um, the practitioner side of our community is going to be very focused on uh, implementation and practice, uh, you know, how, how we can actually affect change in organizations. And we have a wealth of experience across the, you know, the various members of our division who are out there in the trenches really actively trying to make a difference in the world and are doing incredible things. No, I, I, I count folks like that as uh, uh, mightily uh, courageous in a sense, because we've been about a year and a half or more uh, globally, as well as here in the country, 
finding just about every customary way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, tossed in a cocked hat, as we used to say in Maine. Uh, and the need for uh, folks who can come in to a senior group or any particular size organization, for-profit, non-profit, government, and sit with them and reason out uh, the things that can be repaired and things that can't be repaired, and then getting people hopeful again. Uh, you must pick up some of that in, in your conversations with practitioners, don't you, David? That, oh. That's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that you know, one of the interesting aspects of the field of organization development is that it's very process oriented, uh, at least when we're thinking about practice, uh, you know, process, which, and I'm sure you're, anyone's listening to this podcast probably knows, you know, what that, what that refers to. No, um, I think I have but, some civilians on here too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, process really work uh, refers to the, the, the way in which people relate to one another as they deliberate, have conversations and, and uh, dialogue uh, in the decision-making process. And uh, so um, as OD practitioners, if you have a process orientation, uh, your whole focus will be on helping people to engage and relate to one another in effective ways that allow them to truly draw on all the resources and uh, potential that every member of that uh, you know, whatever group or organization you're, you're working with can bring. Mm. Uh, so that's what process uh, consultation is all about, really, at least in my view. Mm. It's about enhancing those resources, appreciating them in the sense that you're growing them, um, but uh, helping, you know, people to, to bring the best of themselves to what they do. And when that happens, it's, you know, when that happens, it's magical. You know, you, there's yeah. a, there's a, just such a powerful, uh, spirit that can enter into a, a, into a group, a person or an organization. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's, I think what is the, the addictive, uh, you know, magic bullet or whatever. I don't know the addict. It's what it, it's what practitioners just love to do. You know, there's nothing like knowing that you've made an impact, yeah. um, and when you've, you've gone into an organization and you see that light go on and, you know, people really open up and, uh, and, and kind of the, the, the boundaries or the, the obstacles start to melt away. Uh, and that's not, not easy to do. I was going to say that, that you have to be, uh, think of the work of David Jameson and his colleagues mm -hmm. who studied self as the sort of the primary instrument of organization development and change work, the self, you have to, know yourself you have to <laughs> have uh, a lot of confidence and obviously a, a bag of of tricks of tools sure. uh, to enter in and back in times before covid began uh, there was sort of a routine and rhythm to that work mm -hmm. there was this period where there wasn't any and peter would peter vale would say and then the high water <laughs> rose and, and ran through so now it is a lot more of the self i think David, in terms of bringing that presence, that calming, mm -hmm. confident presence, presence says, yes, there's uncertainty out there now. I certainly see it. Mm -hmm. But in these kind of conversations, in the process, we're going to have them. 
we just might see some light on the horizon. Is that sort of the way it goes? Well, I mean, again, ideally. <laughs> ideally. Uh, I think that the skill set of the OD practitioner is, is, has never been more relevant than today. Um, it's always yeah. been relevant. Um, but we live in such a relational society now mm -hmm. um, where uh, the you know, the, the factions and the divisions uh, across our, our organizational and our societal systems are becoming very deep and, um, you know, very emotional. Mm -hmm. And process OD practitioners uh, have a, an incredible capacity to help people just to talk and to, you know, to build bridges, um, to cross those um, those chasms that can exist and that, you know, they become, they're sort of, they start, you know, in the mindset, um, but then they, you know, play out in, uh, in, in the way that uh, people interact with one another. And we, we're going to move forward as a, as a civilization and, and, and in our organizations to reach our highest potential, we absolutely have to address those kinds of, of, of challenges. So the OD professional, I think is definitely well situated to do exactly that. And I would also add that to the extent that practitioners are grounded in evidence-based uh, activities, you know, where they understand how, why what they do is making a difference, uh, that in, enhances what they're capable of doing all the more. And from my perspective, that's one of the key initiatives that we really and need to be focusing on. I think we always have focused on in the ODC division, um, but we can do even better uh, at bringing together the worlds of, of research, scholarship, and and practice. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, I I do. I, it's kind of uh, venturing it maybe into interesting territory to 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 say it like this, but I do think there is one of those social divides is between the world of research and practice and even education and practice to some extent. So yeah, um, you know, I think uh the the direction of the Academy of Management is moving right now, uh, you know, where we where we have um just tremendous calls for for us to become much more relevant in, you know, in the business school or in the school of management uh we we are I, I think beginning to see some significant movement to actually build that ecosystem that, that sits between research uh education and practice and, and that's actually where my passion is right now that's what i want to contribute to to help uh to build and to foster now the timing is quite right for that passion david and and you've kind of revealed what brought Peter Vale into uh, not only throughout the 50 plus years of his active career, even after his um, not being able to be out in the world physically, certainly was mentally, but it was always, oh, when are we going to, and he was a Dean of a major school of business and government. He still asked this question after he finished it. When are we going to not just be relevant in regard to the theories we produce, relatable mm -hmm. what is it about yeah. us in the academy right that makes it such that these managers with these enormous responsibilities right. all kinds of consequences don't seem to want to reach to us when they have a dilemma 
And yeah, <laughs> you know, they come yeah. to us as graduate students, then we hear about it. But otherwise, so that, that no, I think what you're saying now is picking up on the academy reference is that we may have to become more relatable and we can be, you know, we who've worked all our careers in colleges and university. And here's yeah. one reason, and it's right. probably true of Wright State. It's our schools are not the same structure uh, now that they were almost two years ago they, mm -hmm. in terms of enrollments, in terms of who will, who will prefer to be on campus to learn and teach, who would be still wanting to stay off. Uh, all of our assumptions about sports, you remember how those are all thrown out uh, around not being able to have our games, all kinds of things that sort of made it such that while we weren't being that used by the business community or the decision-making community, essentially, we still had a pretty nice thing going here. We could still get our, our publications and all the rest. Now I can say that because you don't have to say that because you're still, you're still practicing in all those fields. Uh, but I, I, fe I feel now that it could be the right time. If so, what will the division in you and everyone who really, really feels this, what, what do you think we'll be doing to be more relatable? Well, that's a really, that's a, <laughs> I love that question. <laughs> yeah, but I've given you no time to think about it. Well, <laughs> that's I, the I best that. time. <laughs> I, I've actually been thinking about that question a, a lot. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I, I appreciate the question. I, I think there is a, a need to recognize uh, several sort of forces at play. Uh, one you've already alluded to, and that is that, you know, even prior to COVID, the relevance of a business education or a management education uh, and the value of it from a societal perspective has been questioned at unprecedented levels. Uh, I think that's just an objective statement. All documented in, in various right. studies, yeah. That's right. So, you know, it's uh, it's telling, and, and we need to, to, to sort of acknowledge that uh, in many uh, management circles, there is an attitude out there that, you know, you, you send kids to college, send them to business school and have them get their degree uh, and kind of, yeah, do what they tell you to do in your school and education, et cetera, et cetera. And then come to our organization. We're going to tell you how it really works. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, true. Uh, you know, if that's that's really true, it's kind of shocking for them. Certainly, to find implicit, that out. yeah, certainly implicit in 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 the attitudes that many hold yeah. toward education and towards you know business or management education. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's just something to think about. Um, I think, secondly, as we look at what COVID has done. Uh, to, to the, to the world of higher education uh, and challenged all the assumptions about how education can be delivered. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also uh, caused enormous stress on institutions where, you know, financially we've just been hit with, you know, in the, in the pocketbook. Mm -hmm. uh, I, there's not a single institution on the planet that hasn't suffered from uh, some challenge to enrollment or, uh, you know, the cost of adapting to uh, new modes of, of delivering education and so forth. And, and in that environment, the value that we deliver through the business school is, is, uh, is 
you know, that become that that becomes an important question that we Huge need, one. An we open need question. have answers for, right? Yeah, it's an open question. So I think those are some factors that we need to take uh, very seriously. And then just in the how that the academy and the world of practice have diverged over the last 50 years uh, as a friend, I think is it's important to acknowledge how that happened and why it happened and the forces that are continuing to perpetuate that separation. Uh, and especially from the, the side of the academy, it is, uh, I think, is we have to acknowledge that there is a system now in place that rewards uh, education and professors who, uh, who feed the research mis- machine. Yeah, the journals. The journals, publications mm-hmm. of, of various sorts, uh, you know, there, and there's lots of variance in, you know, like quality and, and, and all that, but still what is rewarded, uh, you know, is production in, in that regard. And, and any activity, you know, I've, another of my, uh, my areas of focus is, is around virtues in organization and, and, in, and in people. In fact, my research career is primarily focused on values and virtues. Mm-hmm. One of the things we learned from that uh, area of study is that when you overemphasize behaviors that are generally good, you take those to an extreme, uh, they lose their virtue. And, um, you know, we I think we have, we are seeing elements of that and the, the, the tremendous emphasis on publishing at all costs and, yeah. and uh, at the expense really of, of gaining serious, significant exposure to the world of practice. So, you know, it's very common now for a young academic to be trained in a PhD program where they have very limited exposure to what happens in reality and practice. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and they're, you know, sound logical reasons for that, but what it does in effect is perpetuate that division where we we have a hard time communicating across the, you know, what becomes a gulf between those two worlds. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, um, it's a seriously serious breach. Yeah. It, it is, it has been about 50 years uh, since again, going back to my, fr- my friend and teacher, Peter, we had those kind of conversations yeah. Uh, where he and other OB uh, professors slash practitioners were back then, they had the NTO, you know, the sensitivity training kind mm-hmm. of thing going. They had uh, a lot of the research that Peter did and uh, Bill Torbert and mm-hmm. and Alan Cohen and some of the others who were forming their 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 careers back then was uh, qualitative. Uh, and even cases were looked at more from a behavioral standpoint. So I guess what I'm saying is it was, it started out with, with that, with the investigator right. uh, needing to be out where practice occurs, needing to be in the field, right. being almost required to be in the field. Right. Uh, and so many of the most influential studies that we still cite were done by people who did their research with <laughs> practicing managerial leaders uh and sometimes uh uh before they came in and became academics uh and i talked to them with some of them on the podcast and it's kind of frustrating for those who were practitioners and very successful 
had a lot of nice results in what they're doing, but had this desire to teach and just and to pro provide some some deep thought, you know, in published form. They get into the academy and they've somewhat felt marginalized. Um, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well, what have you done? Who? Where did you? Where did right. you study? Oh, uh, well, so there's that piece, and and that's that's sad, but right. that can be recovered and healed. Another thing I want to mention, uh, you mentioned Wright State, my school, Central Connecticut State, there are literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of public state supported, not necessarily funded anymore, places where people <laughs> right. uh, could have pretty much afford to come to school and earn a bachelor's and a master's degree. And a lot of us taught by choice in those schools. My point in bringing this up is we had working students as our students, mainly even the ones who were traditional college age, they were working to pay their way. So there was none of this idyllic, you know, strolling across the Ivy campus like Ronald Reagan and whoever <laughs> was in that movie in the thirties with him. Right. This was uh, serious folks getting in, taking full loads, sometimes we're working full time. But my point is that as a teacher, I could honor and capitalize on the fact that they were taking theory as we responsibly shared it right out to work the next right. day. Yep. And then I captured through various mechanisms, ways for them to bring that back in uh, and discuss it. Uh, right. So that the, the, I don't think the breach was there in our level of teaching. I think it started to split as you went up to the uh, research-oriented schools and, and above right. that. So there's plenty of people out there in this division, I'm sure, in the, right. who, who are working for colleges and universities of that sort, who will find it almost like, a re, like oh, wow, finally, <laughs> finally, you know, we can honor practice in a, as it's done and not having that cliche uh, wait till you get out here, we'll tell you how it really works because right. we're teaching people who know how it really works and we need to learn from them. Yet on the other hand, right. rigor and the things that we do to give them something that really could stand on its own as a tool That's right. Uh, is very important. So let's talk a little bit about that side. Uh, the practitioners need to be out there like we've never needed them before, but they also need a really good um, uh, and, and almost seamless flow of the best thinking that the division in our various uh, research uh, right. schools can provide. How, how do you see that working? Well, I would actually broaden it beyond uh, your reference to the division. I think uh, there's a yeah. tremendous amount of, of amazing scholarship that's coming out. And I, I think, you know, one of, one of the themes that has been present in our uh, board deliberations over the last uh, several years has been uh, the 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 notion that we we need to, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, stop navel gazing, <laughs> sort of looking at ourselves and to like sort of lament what is or what's not, yeah, and start acknowledging uh, what is you know outside of uh, the OD uh, folk. Okay, just a minute. So, folks, the phone rang for a moment. We were just talking about gazing at our navels. <laughs> Navel gazing. Well, by that, yeah, and maybe I could restate that. You can edit this, but um, oh well, we got to have uh, some fun too. <laughs> yeah. So the 
I think we need to be forward looking and we need to be expansively looking at what is happening broadly, both across the academy and across the world of practice. Mm-hmm. I, my, my personal belief is that we have, uh, there's been, well, put it this way, over the last, I haven't seen it so much in the last five years, but there's been a period of about 25 years where there's been lament after lament about, you know, the state of OD and what's happening to this field, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. My belief is that OD is thriving. It's alive and well, but it's now uh, being uh, practiced and, and is understood under many different labels. Mm, that's and, true. And uh, so uh, a couple of examples uh, the, the work that's coming out of the, uh, those who affiliate themselves with positive organizational scholarship or positive psychology is absolutely stunning. And, you know, you, if you're involved in any way in the conferences, uh, the, uh, the entrepreneurship, uh, the consulting that you see happening in those communities, is, it's, it's just amazing. And they're changing the world, you know? And what, is, what do we aspire to do as OD, you know, with an OD emphasis, organization change development? The world, help the world change itself. Trying, yeah, we're better. trying to build vibrant, healthy, flourishing organizations and communities. Well, that's right. there's a whole lot of research and practice that's evolving and rapidly in that area. Yeah, It is, it is exactly that, but it's who's, not called. Who's leading that now? Is well, it- it's an emergent movement. But there's, there's all, I, yeah. I think Kim Cameron's name came up in my very fuzzy sure. brain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to track the history of it, go back to the few who started we, writing about it. We, we, and well, you can debate like what the origin is. Um, okay. But uh, I mean, the, the key leaders in that area clearly have been Kim Cameron, of course, uh, Bob Quinn, who was the former chair of the ODC division. Yep. Um, David Cooperwriter, another former chair of the ODC division. Yep. Um, you know, he, he, his work in appreciative inquiry, uh, predated, uh, even the positive organizational scholarship movement, um, you know, positive psychology. Of course you have the, you know, famous psychologists like Marty Seligman and, and, and Chris Peterson. Um, but you know, those are the, those are names, but honestly, it's been, in my view, they are uh, instigators, framers, right? but it's been an emergent movement and that's yeah. exactly what a good, uh, solid movement should be. It should be emergent. And there's all kinds of leaders emerging even now. Yeah. Um, I love that because we used to call those folks and honor them as thought leaders. Right. But they really started to lead the thinking of those who then would use those thoughts to lead and those thought the leads. And it is a wonderful right. chain reaction as long as it gains enough momentum. And that has to do with if what they're applying in positive, uh, in the positive movement is, is, is working. So the pragmatic mm-hmm. side of that. And I, I think going to your point about evidence supporting the work, we would look at those leaders who are leading, leading, leading out from the original uh, people who did the groundwork and what evidence are they collecting? My hunch is there many of them, like one I had in a podcast two weeks ago, would love to spend more time writing about what she's finding as a OD practitioner. Right. 
but she's got to hustle the next engagement, you know? Right. And right. so would a firm, a, a consulting firm need to work on its revenue flow. And so would a university and college now have to be right. working on its revenue right. flow. So we may have a moment where if we could figure out some ways to equip these uh, people who are actually doing the do right. uh, with some very uh, efficient means of re re recording their observations and we could gather them up and I think this is part of the vision you've developed for the division. They right. could be gathered in this hub that you mentioned, and and some of us who then would have more time, right? And uh, to consolidate that would be able to, with due attribution, be able to say, guess what? We're pulling up from the positive aspect of of our work, um, and then on it goes. Yeah. But I think the other point you made, just to be fair to you, is that. If you look at the whole of academy management, and I'm a I'm a Yankee, always used to bother me being one who really valued every dollar's worth of anything, every resource. Up in Maine, we had we had so little, we had to do a lot with a little. And I then I went in, and I saw this academy with literally thousands of men and women uh, in uniform. They all, all seemed to wear the same blazer, <laughs> blue shirt. Right, <laughs> and sometimes I used to get a kick out of that because I, I had told my wife if I'm going to another academy meeting, I got to buy a blazer, I'll be out of uniform. But my point is, all these great minds and they're everywhere, you name it, coming from small schools, big schools, great conversations. Loved having the hallway conversations with people I'd never met. Came away with right. my head bubbling like champagne, uh, <laughs> and then it. You know, then we put up these walls and petitions. And I think I even teased you guys a few months ago by saying, why do you call it a division when you want it to be inclusive? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it a yeah. division that yeah. would open up the whole resource of the Academy of Management uh, to the to the needs of that very adventurous practitioner out there trying to help people That's right. recover from the pandemic and then and then start looking at how to flourish? Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, it's uh, been interesting for me to learn a little bit about the origin of the division. Uh, we are, I, I guess we should say this. <laughs> I don't think we said, said this early, but this is our 50th year. So yes. we, will, we will complete our 50th year uh, at the end of July. And uh, I, I've, uh, uh, over the course of the last year, last couple of months, I've had a few short interactions with the very few who are left who were there when that division was when our division was organized and yeah. and the, the descriptions of what what happened are kind of interesting and one of the key questions you know was very controversial uh, apparently was uh whether or not we needed divisions at all you know like what that would do uh to to the the academy at large and and i actually think there's some truth to that you know because we do tend to become kind of insular uh, toward, toward, toward those who are in or out. And particularly for our division, that's, that's problematic. And, and, and as I wanted to say, so I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, that, that we see OD everywhere. Well, I think that's, I mean, if you were to look across the academy, that every, every, almost every division has some element of, of OD or change management in embedded yes. within it. Um, certainly in strategy, you know, when we, and we have this new, uh, interest group now, uh, uh, and the strategy and practice, 
um, which I believe it came in division just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have healthcare management. Uh, we have leadership studies, uh, which, you know, there's a huge area that uh, has just exploded around with executive development, executive coaching, coaching as, a, as an area of focus, which definitely draws on OD roots for the, you know, the, the, the work that's done there. So yeah. it's everywhere. And I guess that's my, one of the key things I think we need to acknowledge if we claim the title OD practitioner, yeah, uh, you know, is that, uh, we, we can't just, um, I, I don't know that it's possible for us to be a generalist, you know, at the, in, in an effective way anymore, because, because the work is so deep and becoming deeper in, you know, the specialties that have arisen. And, and I think that's okay. I also think it's in order for us to address this, coming back to this, you know, the, the space in between, you know, the academy and practice and, 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 and really, I'd say there, for me, there are three stools. You know, you've got there are three uh, legs to the stool here. You've got education, you have the academy, and you also have practice. Uh, all those things need to be working uh, in some alignment. Um, we need to acknowledge that it's very difficult in today's environment to wear the hats for all three of those things simultaneously. That's right. You, know? Uh, you, know, you alluded to this earlier. You know, a practitioner who's uh, who is uh, you know has a consulting orientation is 100% focused on clients. Uh, it's very difficult to be focused on research while you're also focusing on the needs of a client. Mm-hmm. The timeline is different. The requirements are different. The rules of the game are different, and we just have to acknowledge that it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time. We need to develop bridges of respect between people who are, uh, you know, have an interest in changing the world, you know, making uh, vibrant, healthy and flourishing organizations uh, and finding ways to partner together, I think is one of the, one of the key uh, potential areas that we can explore. Um, And in order for that to happen, I do think we need a mindset shift yeah. On on all sides, I do think, and I've you know I've been part of practitioner organizations and practitioner conversations where they have a clear, visceral, negative orientation toward scholarship and toward those who are in the academy, That's and true. vice versa. Yeah. I have you know been in many conversations with fellow academics uh, who have a clear, dismissive orientation toward practice, mm-hmm. and that's problematic, you know, um, and, and you see it and it can manifest in, in lots of different ways. But for me, it's, we need to address the, the ecosystem between these worlds. There mm-hmm. is a very, very limited ecosystem right now that helps us to bridge those two worlds. And honestly, I believe that's what we need. We need a new effort to flesh in organizational clearly focused uh, efforts that helped to create bridges between these two worlds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's more than just one world saying, okay, we're going to trend like on the academic side, we're going to translate what we do. So the practitioners can understand us and practitioners saying, well, maybe we could use uh, some research or some, uh, you know, a deeper dive into name your topic. Um, I think it's more than that you gotta, there needs to be a matchmaking function, you know, that where there's a, there's a, 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 
an, an ecosystem of publications and of people who specialize in in, in pulling you know uh, these two worlds together. You in know, my that that last point, David, is uh, I think is my mind was churning here because I, I love to hear about these dilemmas where if only, but there is a, there is the opening therefore for some minds, some people, some personalities who love working in between you're almost like an ambassador or a diplomat if you will for the for these two uh parts of the whole and for this ecosystem uh we'll have to work on on how they can be employed to do so right but in a way your university has given you for five years an opportunity to provide this extraordinary uh leadership uh to to get that to get that going and now you're thinking about ways that somehow organizationally the two worlds can um, find each other <laughs> yeah uh, in, in, right. a, in a in a very comfortable neighborhood of uh, of thought where they can talk and listen to each other exchange documents because we tend to still need text to to mm -hmm. By what we know right but it could be a lot more dynamic and since i'm watching the clock here i was saying that one thing of the many things that we can look positively about after we've had to make these huge adjustments is that right now you and i are talking and i'm in connecticut and you're in ohio and when i've been on calls that you've set up with the help of the folks at nexus for change i've seen people from uh all around. In fact, it's a kind of a thing we laughed. Uh, one of the last times you and I had a chance to be on with David Jamison and uh, I think Carol Gorlick was on. It was when when I chose along with them uh, to be on at two two p.m. When in fact, yeah, the conference you were hosting, we were supposed to be on at two a.m. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so for the Eastern Hemisphere. That's right. But if you use yeah. that as as a, a metaphor for the possibilities now of convening uh, and uh, and even very close in one-on-one -on -one collaboration, which is now being supported for industry for because they've discovered that they need collaboration tools. It could be a good time. It could be like we don't have to invent the whole wheel right. to create this third entity in, uh, in this system. Yeah. Now, if, with the little time, and I, I was going to make this all about you and your career, but I have in a way because this is what's on your mind and in your heart. But uh, another another big question for very little time to answer it. Uh, do you remember David Bright? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you found yourself thinking the way you're thinking now was it in your undergraduate time was it in high school was it later mm -hmm. on where you were saying i'm just fascinated with organizations and how they flourish and change and yeah i can't get it out of my head so i want to be in that world uh, do you remember how what kicked you into this uh <laughs> yeah wonderful oh, work yeah. that you're yeah doing? yeah what set me on this trajectory yeah i do uh, uh when I uh, was in my undergraduate, <clears throat> I did my undergraduate and a master's, uh, actually a, a joint master's degree at Brigham Young University. Mm -hmm. um, but my first degree is in accounting. And uh, I think this is a, is this is a, 
a typical story for someone who an, ends up in, in uh, organizational studies or in organization development. Uh, the, the further along I went on that path, the more I was like, well, I, you know, I'm really good at accounting, but where's my passion? And yeah, I took a, a year-long sabbatical from my undergraduate program <laughs> to go do intern, internships. Yeah. Uh, and so it was kind of a gap year. Uh, one of those uh, internships was uh, six months in, in Endicott, New York, working uh, for IBM. And uh, I was recruited almost immediately to work on a what was then termed a reengineering team. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was uh, one of my uh, em- my fellow employees had been selected, handpicked to go off site and do a training and what I now understand is OD, yeah. how to pick a project, how to assemble a team, how to identify, you know, opportunities to improve process, et cetera. And so she came back very excited, asked me to be part of this team. And so I spent the better part of my, my six months there working uh, with this group. Wonderful. And um, there was a key moment right towards the end of our process uh, where the project we had been working on. Uh, with lots of, you know, sweat hours, uh, you know, for my fellow coworkers, a lot of risk taking from their perspective, a lot of people who just survived that, you know, that first incredible downsizing that yeah. IBM went through in 1993. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they were survivors. was not always a, a, a welcome uh, word. Exactly. Then. Yeah. <laughs> so just some really interesting conversations with those, those individuals. But I remember we, we had a moment where uh, our project was, it was either go or no go. And there were, there was resistance from another group on site who had not been part of our process or really understood what it was we were trying to do. And uh, I'll never forget this meeting where uh, Bonnie was the name of the team lead. She pulled us all into this room that was about the size of a closet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there were five members of our team. Uh, There's uh, four IBMers, full-timers, you know, lifers. And then there was me. I was the internship or I was the intern from, you mm-hmm. know, the kid, <laughs> the kid in the room, right? <laughs> uh, I was 24 years old at the time, and yeah. the the other members of this team were just livid, angry mm-hmm. about what was going on with this other group, on and uh, they just went on and on, just lashing out angrily at how they were trying to sabotage us, and they weren't going to play along, and all this work was going to go down the tubes, and they should just do what we're going to tell them to do because you know <laughs> we're more powerful than they are, and all this stuff. And and I was just, I was kind of stunned. I just sat there and and <laughs> listened to this, and then there was a moment, there was a pause. You know, as you can imagine this, you Take know, angry, angry rhetoric. Yeah, yeah, there's a moment. There's a moment of pause. And Bonnie turned to me and she asked, Dave, are we being unreasonable? And it was like one of those moments where I could feel like this, the weight of this moment. And I, I can't even describe it. It was a spiritual experience for me. <laughs> like that's the, way I, that's the way I could describe it. It's like, it's, and two things simultaneously went through my head. One is it's very important what I say in this moment. I just felt that. Mm-hmm. And secondly, what to say just came to me. And all I said was, you know, I think they need to be on our team too. 
That's all I said. Ah. There was silence for 10 seconds. And then another one of the team members said, he's right. Let's go get him. (laughs) (laughs) And in that instant, all that resolved Uh, within an hour. We had walked them through everything we we're going to do. We got their two team, you know, their two, two managers from this other group, helped them understand what we we're going to do, explain it all to them, went through it, and now it was all resolved. And, uh, you know, I didn't realize at that moment kind of what had just happened. But as I reflected on that, that moment over and over again, uh, and I went back to BYU and, and uh I, I decided that I wasn't going to be an accountant trying to figure out what I was going to do. I didn't even know what the field of organizational behavior or organization right, right. was. But you wanted to do more of that. <laughs> I want to do more of that. Yep. And uh, so it, that's the, wonderful. The, 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 I guess the rest you could say is history, but there were, there were a few other developments that kind of got me along the way, but uh, that was, a, that was a pivotal moment for me. We we may have to do another podcast to, to chronicle your, 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 career but it seems to me that uh and i have to bring one more uh, thought in here that i drew from Peterville. uh i remember at the end of i finished all the coursework and was pretty much through the dissertation i remember sitting with him in a lounge at the university of connecticut and i said um peter i, I i'm a i love being out there love making things happen you know i I'm a really a community educator and I, I really don't see the classroom in my future. Uh, and uh, he said, well, you know, you got to do what you want to do and follow your heart and all that. But I said, well, what is it that's kept you so fascinated with organization behavior all this time? He was that he was young, but all this time for me was a lot of time because I was only 29. He said, efficacy at the point of action. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't make that up. That came, mm-hmm. he cited it. <laughs> uh, efficacy at the point of action. That's your story in that closet. <laughs> mm-hmm. At that very moment when something had to be done that was effectively going to change the, the tone, the, all, mm-hmm. everything that it took, and the behavior, that's what you did. And that is, you call it magical before in this conversation. Sure. That's what I think both we in our classrooms in the larger division that you talk, we've talked about, as well as those who are in the field. I think we all want efficacy at the point of action. Mm, yeah. We just have to recognize that what we do, even in a book that we publish, it can be written in the sense that it's experience in a point of inaction, if you will, so that someone reads a phrase and they go, Bing, that's it, you know. Yeah. So it's lighting up those lights. That's the fun of it. It always has been, always will be. You've been a wonderful person to converse with here. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it too. I have. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcasts where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcasts page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to 
actionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.